Welcome to the Boombasticast with Alexander Hawk and Mr. Matthew Fisher. And today we have a great episode for you. We are going to be interviewing Gary K. Wolf, the creator of Roger Rabbits. Hell yeah. Nothing Super cooler excited. than that, man. Nothing cooler than that. You know, a great man, a great honor and a privilege to sit down with this guy here. A whole bunch of stories, you know, about his come up and, you know, the gigantic explosion that was Roger Rabbit. You know what I mean? Um, myself and the Hawk over there, uh, gigantically influenced. I still quote to this day, you know, cut the bull stick. Uh, aren't you Eddie Valiant? I heard you change your name to Jack Daniels. Uh, I was going to do the hey, Harvey hey, line. Hey, 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 hey. Um, I got a 50-year-old lust with a three-year-old dinky. You know. <laughs> Remember me when I killed your brother? Uh, I, I talk just like this. Without further ado, welcome Gary K. Wolf to the Boombastic cast. Hello. How you doing? Can you hear me? I can hear you. All right, but you can't see me, right? Uh, let me try something, though, real quick. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> ah. <laughs> How are you guys? <laughs> okay, how you doing? Okay. Gary, how are you? I'm good, thank you very much. You had the food poisoning. How'd you mean? had the food poisoning. Uh, you know, I... I I had to laugh when you told me that because, Uh-oh. well, in this, in this day and age, when you say, oh, my God, I'm sick, and then you say, oh, it's food poisoning, you say, oh, thank God, you know, thank God, that's all it is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I know. I agree with you 110%. It felt like, um, it felt like the, last, the last seconds of COVID, actually. Oh, I know. You know, I've been there, done that. And yeah. uh, the, the unfortunate thing is, you, you know, you can't really tell how you got it because – it's not something that you ate like two hours earlier or even maybe the day before. It could have been like two days ago. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I forgot how much I hated that. Like how, 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 when you're that deep in the sickness, how like much like death you feel. I forgot how much. <laughs> you feel that. Oh, oh boy. Oh boy. Yeah. You guys, uh, you guys had the COVID shot? Not yet. Not oh, yet. No. I got my first one uh, actually two weeks ago. I got my second one on Wednesday. Um, and they, they say that after the second one that you experience a, a day of uh, complete and utter misery, but, uh, you know, better than having COVID, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. there's a little bit of it in there, right? Is yeah. They do with the vaccine, there's a little bit in there. That's what they're saying. Yeah. That's what they're saying. We'll see. I'll let you know. <laughs> <laughs> Gary will keep us informed. I'll, I'll, I'll put you, I'll put you on my, uh, my medical, uh, my medical update, uh, Russ. <laughs> yeah. Well, it is an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Uh, mm-hmm. Nice to be here. Actually, nice to be anywhere these days. So, yeah, that. Yeah. You know, we're, we're gigantic fans, of course. Me and Alex yeah. always talking about, of course, Roger Rabbit, of course, sitting right next to you. Okay. Yeah. He 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 watches me over over my shoulder and corrects. Uh, any character descriptions of him that he doesn't like. So, yeah, I, I would rather have Jessica, but uh, <laughs> that's what the other shoulder is for. <laughs> the good and bad angel. <laughs> Hello, Roger. How are you doing this evening? <laughs> Just give him the eye. <laughs> so, um, so as an author, you know what I mean? When did you really first get? the vibe that, you know, writing was the thing that you really wanted to do? Oh, uh, well, I, I don't want to be, I don't want to make myself seem precocious because I, I wasn't and I'm not, but uh, it all started about the second grade. And um, in, in the second grade, uh, my second grade teacher, I, and I, I, first, let me tell you, I come from a small, small farm town in Illinois, 1400 people called Earlville. Um, and, um, so my second grade teacher, uh, gave the class, uh, a picture to color and the whole object of the exercise was to stay inside the lines. 
And I, that was it. Stay inside the lines. So um, I took the picture home to color it. We could keep it overnight. And it was a picture of typical kind of a farm scene. I mean, there was a farmhouse. There was a barn. There was a field. There was a fence. And there was a cow out in the middle of the pasture, right? So I, I took that picture and I colored the farmhouse yellow, which was the color farmhouses were around Earlville. Uh, I colored the barn red because, you know, barns were red. Green grass, uh, um, uh, brown fence. And then I came to the cow. And my, my mother had always told me that when people were alone, they sometimes got sad, they got lonely, and they got blue. And I'm looking at this poor cow all alone out there in the middle of the field, the color of the cow blue, right? So the next day, I, I, but I stayed inside the lines. I, mean, I was inside the lines. <laughs> so the next day, I, I handed the picture back to my teacher. And the day after that, she, uh, she passed them all out, all except for mine. And she said, Gary, she said, I want you to come up here to the front of the class. And I said, Oh my God, I have, I have stayed inside the lines better than anybody. So I went out up in front of the class. She said, All right, now face the class, turn and face the class. So I did. And she held that picture up over my head and she said, class, she said, look at this stupid, stupid picture. She says, everybody knows that cows are brown, cows are black, cows are white. Cows are sometimes brown, black, and white all together. Never, never, never are cows blue. She says, Gary, don't you ever do anything that stupid again. So she called my mother. Now, you know, I mean, this was, this was a big deal, not just for me, but for my mother. Um, and, and my mother had to go to school. And the teacher said, I think there's something wrong with Gary. He colored a cow blue. So that night, I was home and my folks called me in the living room and my mother and my dad, and they sat me down and they said, Gary, why did you color that cow blue? And I said, yeah, ma, ma, it was you. It was, it was, it was all you. You told me that when people are alone, they get sad and lonely. They color, they, 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 they get blue. So I'm looking at this lonely cow colored in blue. So my mother and father said, Gary, you go outside and play for a while. Your dad and I have to think about this. So I went outside and, you got to know my, my parents, uh, wonderful, wonderful people. Uh, but they, my dad had to drop out of school in the third grade to go to work during the depression. My mother had to drop out of school in the eighth grade and just go to, go to work during the depression. These were, these were not what you would call upscale, well-educated urban liberals. I mean, these were hard scrabble working folk. And I didn't think that this was going to have a happy ending for me. So finally, my mother yelled out, she says, Gary, come on back in here. She came back in, came back in, and she said, you know, Gary, your dad and I talked about this, and we decided that the next time you want to color a cow blue, you go ahead and color a cow blue. And that was, by and large, no question about it, the best piece of advice I have ever gotten in my life. Uh, it also, I mean, I was only in the second grade and I didn't know, but it also validated my creativity. And, um, my mother called the teacher and, and uh, of course this was a big deal for her because the teacher was like a god to yeah. my mother. And she said, look, the next time Gary wants to do something like that, he's, he's got our permission. You just let him go ahead. So a couple of weeks went by and we got another assignment. We were supposed to write what we did on our summer vacation. And all the kids rode, well, gee, I went, I went to Pitt Sticks Lake and God, we went to, we went to Wisconsin and, uh, and I wrote this little four page story about how during my summer vacation, I went out in my backyard and built a rocket ship using tin cans and string and flew it to the moon. And the teacher just gave it back to me, didn't make a comment. And that was it. And, and that was essentially the start of my writing career. I have, uh, uh, I've been writing ever since. And um, I, I mean, I've colored a lot of cows blue since then. Um, when, uh, when I went to university, I went to University of Illinois and I went as an engineer of all things, because uh, that was the, that was the high status profession uh, 
in Earlville. We had an electrical plant there and electrical engineers were high status. Uh, and we didn't, what we didn't have was a, a, a guidance counselor or a jobs counselor. I mean, we, I had no idea what there was to do in the world. I had no idea that somebody could make a living writing. I had, I, it, it was inconceivable to me that anybody could do that. So I went to, uh, went to the University of Illinois as an engineer and spent the, the first semester there just completely and totally miserable. I, I mean, I had a slide rule that I wore strapped down to my hip and uh, I, I was spending uh, for every hour I spent in class, I had to spend five hours in a lab and uh, another three hours in, uh, uh, in homework. And I, I, I was having no fun. Not that you're supposed to go to college and have fun, but I understand that for some people it's part of it. Some people, uh, I, was have, I was having no fun. And uh, the only class I really enjoyed was English. Uh, and that was the Fulcock class. They, they, at the University of Illinois in those days, they had to accept any graduate of an Illinois high school. They could not turn them away. You know, no SATs or any of that. If you graduated from an Illinois high school, you got into the University of Illinois. But they, they would flunk you out. And they used the uh, English class mostly to flunk you out. So I was taking this English class and the English instructor um, gave me an assignment to, to read the Odyssey and write a book report. And the whole class had to do it. And of course, that was a big flunk out, you know, read the Odyssey. Oh, Jesus, write a book report. Whoa. So I read the Odyssey and instead of just writing a book report, I rewrote it as a piece of noir fiction and I handed it in. And uh, the next day, the instructor handed them all back, but mine, right? I said, oh, here we go again. <laughs> and she called me up and she said, Gary, she said, I had to fail you on this because you did not write a book report. But your writing was so magnificent that I am just going to give you an A and proficiency you out of the class and you don't have to come anymore. And that'll give you more time to concentrate on your uh, on your engineering studies, which I needed at the time. And if if I had been a smart guy back then, I would have said, hey, you know, maybe this is fate trying to tell me something. Maybe yeah. I ought to get out of engineering now. But uh, that's that's kind of been my my life. I've I've always I've always written. Um, I didn't start to publish until much, much later. Uh, I was writing poems to the, to the young woman who eventually uh, became my wife. And, you know, and she said, gee, you know, these are just wonderful. She said, you know, you, you read a lot of science fiction. You should try writing science fiction. And so I said, well, yeah, sure, why not? So I tried writing science fiction, and I spent a year writing a, a story. Uh, it was 10 pages long. took me a year. And uh, my wife said, oh, this is really this is really good. So I sent it to a magazine, the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. And uh, six months went by and I didn't hear anything. And I figured, well, you know, that's how that's how writing works. I mean, it's, it's in a it's in a trash can somewhere. It's so bad it's in a trash can somewhere. After six months, I get this telegram, a telegram, the only telegram I've ever got in my life, Western Union, you know. Telegram saying we really loved your story, and we'd like to buy it, and we'll pay you fifty dollars. Oh, fifty dollars for ten pages, but a year's work. Right? It's like it's like uh, uh, twenty three cents an hour. If you if you so I, I I got fifty bucks for that story, and again that was a that was a turning point for me because it validated me as a professional writer. I had made money on something that I had written, so. Um, I mean, I was as happy with that sale as I have ever been with any sale ever in my life. I was, I was literally dancing on our, on our dining room table. And (laughs) so we were living in San Francisco at the time. And I said, you know, I'm, I'm now an official science fiction writer. I got to start dressing like a writer. Right. So I went down to the Haight-Ashbury and I went down to uh, Gough Street where uh, some of the trendier, uh, boutiques were located and I got myself a black turtleneck, uh, which was very in in those days. Yeah. I got, got myself a tweed jacket with uh, leather patches. I got myself a 
custom-made pair of leather pants, right, which I could still fit in, except this being the 70s, they were bell-bottoms in the, you know, the bottoms of her bought this big. Uh, and the whole outfit cost me $375. So I wound up on my first sale, like three and a quarter in the hole, right? And had a right fit. But uh, that's where it started. And it's, it's gone on ever since. Yeah, you got to enjoy life, though. You got to yeah. get that three hundred seventy-five. You got to. You got, and now, I mean, and now look what I wear, right? I mean, <laughs> pajama, pajama bottoms and a plaid shirt, right? No, that's four hundred seventy-five dollars, <laughs> right there. <laughs> so, uh, you know, how how much do you think the the the, the business of, of writing has changed from the time you got into it back then to like any people trying to get into it now? Oh, it's changed a lot. Um, yeah. You know, when I first started, there there were all kinds of avenues for beginning writers to uh, get into writing. I, I, you know, you had all of the science fiction magazines, uh, the scores of them. You had uh, hardcover science fiction anthologies. I published a lot with uh, Damon Knight and his Orbit series. And a lot of my early stuff went to Damon Knight and the Orbit series, which were hardcover anthologies, which then went to paperback uh, there were there were mystery magazines. There, if you really wanted to branch out, there were true romance magazines. There were there were all kinds of ways for um, budding writers to get their stuff published. Yeah. And th- there weren't a lot of well, there there weren't a lot of writers. And frankly, the competition wasn't that stiff, right? Yeah. I mean, there were a lot of people that were writing, but not a lot of people that were writing well. I mean, there were not a lot of people writing anything that you'd want to read. Yeah. Um, as the years have progressed, two things have happened. The market has shrunk. You don't have, you know, you don't have uh, Playboy. You don't, well, you have Playboy, but it, it's not the market that it once was. Right. And you, you don't have a lot of the, the science fiction magazines publishing anymore. You, you don't have a lot of the mystery magazines. You don't, you don't have um, the places that a beginning writer could go without a lot of street cred behind him and publish something. They won't publish somebody that they don't know. They'd rather publish Stephen King than, you know, Joe Schmo down the street. Right. So uh, that's one thing. The second thing is, uh, the competition's gotten a lot, lot better. I mean, people, <laughs> people who write today, are, who even people who start out, who are rank amateurs, are a lot better than people who were rank amateurs back when I was starting. I mean, the, the level that I was at back then, um, I, I would be at the bottom of the heap today because people that is, have just gotten better. There's there are more writing classes. Uh, you know, writing is, is more accepted mm-hmm. as a, as a, an honorable profession. You, you, you know, when you were, when you were a writer back in my day, it, it was kind of sleazy. You know? <laughs> like, oh, geez. You know, you were, what, what do you, you know, what do you write? Like pornography? No, no, no. I write about talking rabbits. Oh, well, that's, <laughs> that's just maybe one step above pornography. Uh, but, um, it's harder today. You know, it used to be, it used to be easy to, to get a book published. You wrote the book, uh, you, you sent it around to, and you could do it yourself. You sent it around to editors at various publishers. And uh, sooner or later, it'd get published. I, I had a, I had an instructor in college once who said anything that is written by man under the sun today gets published, but that's not true anymore. It's it, it, the market is so competitive. It now costs so much to um, to publish a novel, yeah. uh, and the publishers who publish novels want proven commodities. I mean, they want to publish uh, John Grisham. Uh, they, they don't want to publish some unknown from down the street, even though he's ten times as good. Yeah. Uh, and they all want merchandise tie-ins. They don't don't just want a good story. They want a good story with some characters that. Uh, they can they can sell to the movies and make a movie out of it and make dolls from. So it, it's a it's a much tougher profession than it used to be. Yeah. yeah. To to go back to that teacher thing though, I feel like it's probably got a little more loose on the stifling, the small town mentality of no, you can never make it. You know what I mean? 
Well, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you know. Well, it's kind of, you know, it's kind of interesting. Um, small town mentality. I, 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 I told you, I grew up in, in Earlville, Illinois, 1400 people. And, uh, you would think that I'm the most famous person to come out of Earlville, Illinois, but my, uh, my best friend from whenever, um, he became a priest. His name was John Myers. He became a priest and, um, eventually uh, became a, a bishop. He became the Bishop of Peoria and eventually became uh, an archbishop, which is you know, pretty high up in the yeah. church. He's the archbishop of New Jersey. And um, yeah, he was the guy. I, I say we, we were friends forever. He was the guy who introduced me to science fiction. And that happened in the seventh grade. He, he we were both, Voracious readers. I mean, I, I read, uh, like adventure stories, Robin Hood and, uh, King Arthur and, uh, Treasure Island. And he read, even then he read biographies and histories and really boring stuff. But we both, <laughs> now I'm not saying kids, it's not boring. Uh, <laughs> and don't do drugs. All right. So, um, um, so he came, we, we both love science. And so he came to me one day with this book and he, it was called Spacehawk. And he said, you know, I, I've got to, I, I read this book, Spacehawk. I found it at the library. He said, it's science, but it's fiction. It's science fiction. And we had never heard of this. So he had read it and loved it. And, um, he said, you got to read it. So I read it and I loved it. And it was, it was just incredible. I mean, incredible. It changed my life without, Having read Spacehawk, there would have been no, um, there would have been no Roger Rabbit. No. So we went to the, the town librarian and said, can you get us more of this science fiction? She said, yeah, I, I can do that. So she got us, she got us the giants. She got us Ray Bradbury and Isaac Asimov and, um, you know, all the biggies and, and we just loved it. And, um, we both got hooked on science fiction. I mean, I started writing it. John continued to read it. Uh, John could quote you chapter and verse of any Star Trek episode ever filmed. Yeah. And, uh, I don't know, about 15 years ago, uh, for a Christmas present, I said, you know, I'm going to hunt up two copies of Spacehawk and I'm going to give one to John and give, keep one for myself. We're going to reread it and relive our youth. Right. So I did, I did that. I, I had, I had to find two copies of some used book dealer. He wanted John, one to me. And, um, I read it. It's the worst damn book you've ever read. <laughs> <laughs> it was horrible. There was, there was nothing, there was nothing good about it. it. It was, it was trite. It was badly written. The hero, Hawk Cars, was this cardboard Yahoo who wasn't even as good as Buck Rogers. It was semi-racist. He had a, yeah. he had a black kind of step and fetch it guy who was his, right-hand man we call Friday and, yeah. and, and the, the, the villain was a guy he called a slanty eyed nip. And I, it was just nothing good about this book. And I, I, I thought to myself, you know, this is the book that started me on my career without this book. It would have been no Roger Rabbit. So I called John and I said, John, did you read that book? Did you read Space Hawk? And he said, yeah, I did. I said, what'd you think? He said, wasn't very good. I said, yeah, you, boy, you can say that again. And, and so one of us, we, we, we argued over, over which one said it, but one of us said, you know, it's a shame we can't rewrite it the way we remember it instead of the way it actually was. And, uh, once we got that idea, we pursued it and we started writing a book called Space Vulture, which is like one bigger bird than Space Hawk. And um, we we originally were just going to get the rights to Space Hawk and, you know, get rid of all the trash and modernize the story. But there was there was nothing salvageable about it. I mean, it, it, I mean, there was just nothing good about it. So we started fresh. Uh, we used some of the characters names, uh, but we wrote a, a whole new story, a whole new book. And uh, Tor published it. Um, and it was just wildly successful in science fiction circles. 
uh, the New York Times, um, New York Times ran an article on the 10 best, uh, pulp science fiction novels. And there was Asimov and, and Heinlein and Bradbury and us at 10 best pulp science fiction novels. Yeah. And, um, we, we were, ran, we were designated a sci-fi essential, which is a book that, uh, any science fiction lover has to have in their library. Um, the, the reviews on it were stunning, but what, what was really pleasant and enjoyable for us, we were getting letters from guys our age who said, you know, I didn't think anybody would ever write a book like this again. And thank you guys for doing it. And then we started getting letters from guys our age who said, you know, I read it and loved it so much. I gave it to my son or my daughter. And one of them, I remember guy said in the letter, you know, my son was reading in the next room and I kept hearing, Oh man, this is great. Oh man, this is wonderful. And, uh, so we went into a whole new, uh, whole new generation. And, um, that was that was really satisfying. Um, we had a lot of fun doing it. When uh, when you first started to break, did you guys ever get a chance to meet any authors that you really looked up to, like um, that you were fans of, that you know were fans back, or just got a chance to actually be like blow your mind that you met this other person, this other writer? Oh, all the time. Yeah. Um, but two two things, and, and you know, I talked to. Um, I talk to young writers about this all the time. I mean, you're going to meet people that are very famous, who are more famous than you, who, who you have idolized uh, your whole life, and you're going to meet them. And uh, one of two things is going to happen. Either uh, they're going to be wonderful people, or they're going to be total disappointments. And um, you never know how it's going to go. I mean, I have met I have met writers who, as a kid, I idolized. I mean, I, writers whose whose work I have read, I, I've I've read their entire uh, their entire output, and I've met them in person, and they were just complete buttheads. Yeah. And um, it it is a problem for me because I can't separate the artist from the right. work. Right. So. You know, if if I want to continue to read some of the writers that I've loved, I have learned you, you can't meet them. Yeah, I've heard you cannot that. meet them. You, you know that, but there are others like Harlan Ellison. Harlan Ellison was uh, one of my early friends, one of my mentors, and uh, you know, meeting Harlan Ellison did not, in the least, alter. Uh, how I felt about his work. I mean, he was a little, was a little, little cocky little guy, and you know, and loved going into bars and picking fights with people twice his size. Uh, like Alex over here. Hey, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, others, uh, others, uh, not so much. And um, I, 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 yeah, I, I've, I've, I've gotten letters from famous writers. Uh, who have said, yeah, we, you know, I really like your work. Um, you know, let's get together, have a beer sometime. Um, I generally would rather hang around with fans because, uh, fans don't disappoint me as often. Um, it, it's a slippery slope. I, it's the same when I started writing movies and I, I started meeting actors and actresses. And uh, some of them, Bob Hoskins, oh, my God. The, Love the, him. the guy was unbelievable. Just a real down-to-earth, fun-loving guy. I, I mean, the kind of guy you, you just hang around with the guy. You go for a beer. Uh, you do shots. I mean, he's just a just a great guy. No ego. Yeah. Uh, but you, you meet others. Uh, unfortunately, most, <laughs> most of the others who are just big babies and – um, they, they, they are great actors and I, I'm, by actors, I'm including men and women. They are great actors, uh, because they don't have any, any internal, uh, kind of superstructure. They're good at 
pretending to be somebody else. Yeah. Uh, and they're good at doing what they're told to do. Um, and, and um, sometimes that doesn't do you stand you very well in the real world right. where you, you don't have a personality, uh, you know? So it, 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 it happened to me an awful lot when I started meeting actors and directors. Uh, but you know, it happens when you meet people too. I mean, you meet a normal person and, you know, sometimes you say, geez, I, <laughs> this person ought to lock himself in a closet and stay there for the rest of the yeah. Yeah, we, we, we go to a lot of conventions and stuff like that and have the shows. So, like, we, we you know, we, we always say, you know, sometimes you might catch somebody on a bad day. You never know where they're coming from. They could have got a bad call, blah, you know, the whole deal. But, yeah. yeah. You know, you go, you go to a lot of conventions. And how often do you go up to somebody for an autograph? And the person is nice to you, engages you, calls you by name. You say, hey, can I take a picture? They say, sure, come on back. Um, you know, and, and you go away saying that was a great person. How many times do you go to a convention and there's some guy sitting at the table, doesn't even look up. Uh, you say, Hey, would you personalize that to Matthew? He says, no, I don't do that. Uh, yeah. you know? I, I mean, that's an extra 50 bucks. That's yeah. An, yeah, exactly. And you know, I was just talking to somebody the other day about, uh, because I, I, I get, oh my God, uh, a thousand, uh, letters, uh, and emails a month from fans and I answer them all personally. And somebody wrote and said, you know, I really, I really appreciate the fact that you answered my letter. And I, and I wrote back and I, I and I actually posted it on my Facebook page. I said, well, you, you got Jack Brickhouse to thank for that. And they said, Jack Brickhouse, who's that? I said, well, when I was a kid back in Earlville, right? It was a Chicago, uh, Cubs fan. Jack Brickhouse was the voice of the Chicago Cubs. He did the radio commentary for the Chicago Cubs. And, um, my mother, good woman, my mother, my mother found out that Jack Brickhouse's birthday was the same day as mine. And so I was like seven years old. And my mother said, you should send, cause I used to listen to him all the time and I thought it was great. My mother said, you should send him a birthday card. And put a, a white handkerchief in it as a birthday present. Now, why she thought a white handkerchief was a good birthday present for a sportscaster, I don't know. But I did. I, I got a white handkerchief and put it in the birthday card. And I said, happy birthday, Jack. Your birthday is the same day as mine. And I sent it to Jack Rickhouse. And he wrote me back. Wrote me the nicest letter. And I, I pinned it up in my room. And the next year, I sent him another birthday card with another white handkerchief. And he wrote me again and said, oh, you don't know, I've got two white handkerchiefs from you. And I did that for five years. And every year, he wrote me back. And I told my mother, I said, you know, Ma, if I ever get famous enough so that people write me letters, I'm always going to write them back. So, you know, people, my fans have Jack Brickhouse to thank for that. Um Thank you, Jack. Yeah, thank you, thank you, Jack. <laughs> thank That's you, Jack. Good. And 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 uh, you know, if you want to send me a white handkerchief, uh, I don't know. Surrender, <laughs> surrender. <laughs> Gary's going to build a big quilt out of all the white handkerchiefs. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> quilt the blanco. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. I love hearing those stories <laughs> and you paying it forward because you do. When you go to these cons, sometimes you meet these people that are like the only time they look at you is like. To eyeball you to see if they need to ask for more money. You know what I mean? And that's kind of it. Yeah. I mean, no, it's, yeah, it's the things like that. I mean, I mean, the whole thing is, you know, I mean, when, when you, you get to that position, you got to give back to the fans. You got to, you know, you know, connect with them. I think that's a big thing in, in this kind of stuff. Absolutely. You know, without my fans, where would I be? I would be, I would be an unknown hack writer uh, writing advertising copy for breakfast cereal. I mean, and, and I, what really galls me are some of the uh, actors because without the fans, where would they be? Uh, you know, these people are spending now 10 and $12 for a movie ticket to go see them on the screen. Uh, the least they can do is, is 
um, you know, be pleasant. <laughs> be pleasant. If somebody comes up and says, hey, you know, can I have your autograph? Now, I, I know that there's abuse. And, I, I you know, I know fans, you know, don't come up, to, don't come up to your favorite actor when he's having dinner in a fine restaurant with his family. I mean, it's rude, but um, you know, I, I mean, at a, at a show, uh, even sometimes on the sidewalk, um, I think actors owe it to the fans to be pleasant and to have a, an engagement with them. And if they want an autograph, sure. Great. Doesn't take you two seconds out of your life. Yeah, and you might be making their whole week, whole year. Yeah. You know, what I mean? absolutely. You, you know, absolutely. I mean, I have, I have signed autographs for people uh, who have framed them, uh, uh, who have said that that was that was the high point of their life. Uh, you know, I, I, and that makes me feel good. Yeah, it makes me feel good. I, I, I enjoy doing things that make other people feel good. Yeah, good yeah. man. I like that. Like your partner has given me the the eyeball. Let's ask real quick. When did you and Roger first uh, start crossing paths back then? Oh, okay. So, um, so I, I was, I was a, uh, I was a pretty well known science fiction writer in San Francisco. And uh, I had a contract with Doubleday for uh, one, two, three, let's see, uh, Killer Bull, for four novels. I had a contract with Doubleday for four novels. Anything I wanted to write, that I would publish. And the first one I wrote was Killer Bull, which is still my favorite non-Roger Rabbit science fiction novel. And the one for which I'm best known when I go to a science fiction conference i'm not known as the guy that created roger rabbit i'm known as a guy that wrote killer bowl because it's it's incredible science fiction novel and there's a film coming on that right i believe yeah yeah we're yeah. doing a movie on it yeah I mean, cool. yeah uh so i i did killer bowl i did uh, generation removed i did a resurrectionist um and I, for the fourth novel i wanted to i wanted to do something that 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 was outside the envelope. I, I wanted to, I wanted to stretch the boundaries, do something had never been done before. So uh, when I was a kid, uh, again, my mother, uh, I'm a big mama's boy, you know, <laughs> she's the only one that reads my work anyways. Uh, uh, but my mother told me, you know, my father ran the, ran the pool hall and my mother uh, worked in a cafeteria and, uh, she said, you know, if you want to get out of this town and you don't want to, you don't want to wind up running your dad's pool hall, the thing that you can do to make that happen is to read, you know, read what, just read, that will get you out of here. But good mother that she was, she never put any restrictions on what I could read. So what did I read? Well, I read kids read. I read comic books. You know, I'd go down to Andy Giles, B Street Smoke Shop and uh, Tuesdays when the new comic books came in and I'd read all I could before he threw me out. And, uh, you know, then I'd buy the rest with my allowance and I'd trade with other kids and I read them all. And, and my dad uh, was not a big reader, um, but he did read um, what they called in those days, true crime magazines. And if you ever saw um, the movie with uh, Tom Hanks, uh, Road to Perdition, Okay. Uh, Jude, Jude Law plays a photographer who goes to crime scenes and takes pictures of real murders and, you know, real horrific crime scenes and then sells them to magazines. And, and those were real magazines and those were real crime scene pictures. And my dad read those. And again, uh, you know, so there were tons of them lying around the house. And again, my mother had never cared. I, I read horrific true crime magazines. And luckily, uh, I transitioned into a better quality of crime fiction, uh, you know, Dashiell Hammett and Ross McDonald and Mickey Spillane and, uh, you know, hard-boiled private eye stuff. Uh, but my two loves were comic books, cartoons, and comic strips and noir mysteries. So I thought, well, you know, I, I'm going to see if I can find a way to combine those two concepts, you know, cartoons and noir mysteries. And so I'm thinking, you know, how can I do that? So 
uh, I was watching Saturday morning cartoons on Saturday morning, you know, for research, I told my wife, just purely for research. <laughs> and now, now the cartoons were pretty simplistic and pretty badly drawn, but uh, I, I became fascinated with the commercials because you had, you had Tony the Tiger and the Trix Rabbit and Snap, Crackle, and Pop, and Captain Crunch, who were cartoon characters, talking to real children, and nobody seemed to think that was odd. And and I thought, you know, wow, what what would happen if you had a world where cartoon characters were real? What kind of a world would that be? And that's what started it. So I, I started researching cartoons to see what cartoons did and what comic strips did that wouldn't that, that wasn't possible in a real in a human world and uh i spent a year doing the research uh and then came up with roger uh jessica my finest creation <laughs> uh eddie valiant um yeah. my version of sam spade or philip marlowe i named him eddie after my father and uh, uh came up with the story and, and it was a story that could not exist anywhere except in a world where cartoon characters were real. And that, that book was Who Censored Roger Rabbit. Um, so, like I say, I had a contract with Doubleday. Uh, they would publish anything that I wrote. So uh, I sent him the book, sent it to my editor, and she rejected it. The first reject I'd ever had as a writer. Never had a reject. And they rejected Roger Rabbit. So I called my editor and I said, you know, Sharon, why did you reject this? She said, I th- this, is the f- this is the best thing I've ever written. I mean, she said, I agree. She said, it's funny. It's, it's innovative. Uh, but it's so unusual. and so different from anything you've ever written. So different from anything anybody's ever written that I had to send it to the marketing department. And they were the ones who rejected it. So I, I called the marketing department at, at Doubleday and, I said, you know, why, why did you guys reject this? And um, they said, well, there's no category for it on the bookstore shelves. I can't sell this book. It's not a regular mystery. It's not a traditional fantasy. It's not a children's book. It's not a traditional adult novel. Um, there's no category. I, I can't sell this book. And I said, well, what would you do if somebody brought you Gulliver's Travels, uh, the Wizard of Oz or Alice in Wonderland. What would you do with those? And the guy thought for a minute and says, I couldn't sell those either. So uh, <laughs> I called my agent and I said, Bill, you know, what do we do? He says, oh, we'll find, we'll find a, a home for this. Don't worry. I said, well, because if we don't find a home for this, if I can't publish this, I don't want to be a writer because this is what I want to write. And if I can't publish that, I don't want to be a writer anymore. So no, don't worry. So he started sending it out to different publishers, different editors, the same publisher. And along the way, it got 110 rejects. 110 different editors said no. And they all said no for the same reason. They all loved it. But when they sent it to the marketing department, the marketing department says, we can't publish it. There's no market. So it finally wound up on the desk of a young woman St. Martin's Press. Uh, her name was Rebecca Martin. And she had just published a big bestseller. For so the uh, president of St. Martin's gave her a vanity project. He said, all right, you can pick a book, any book you want, and we'll publish it. It'll be your, your little vanity project. And just at that moment, my book came across her desk and she read it. And she said, wow, this is it. So she took it to the head of the publishing department. Uh, president of the company. And she said, this is a book I want to publish. And he said, all right, I'll take it home. I'm going to read it. And I'll get back in the morning. So he took it home, read it, came back the next day. Said, well, Rebecca, I told you that you could publish anything you wanted, but you can't publish this because I can't sell it. So, so Rebecca uh, stood up to the plate and said, look, you told me I could publish anything I wanted, either publish it or I quit. And I said, and so they published it, albeit in very, very small quantities, 5,000 copies, which is next to nothing. And uh, if I had my life to live over, right, uh, 
uh, if I if I could go back in time and relive my life, knowing what I know today, I would go back and I would buy all five thousand of those copies because I think they sold for two ninety nine, right? Yeah. And today, if you look on eBay, they're going for three seventy five. So yeah. <laughs> it would be a very well. But uh, <laughs> you know, I sold it to them, and um, um. Uh, I sold it to him in 1980. It came out in 1981. Um, oh my God, 40 years ago this year. Well, uh, it came out in 1981. And in that, that interim between 1980 and 1981, I got this phone call at home, right? And I answered the phone and the guy on the other end says, is this Gary K. Wolf? I said, yeah. He said, well, this is Roy Disney from the Disney Corporation. I said, yeah. He says, yeah, Roy Disney called me at home, right? That's, that's going to happen. He says, no, 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 really, Roy Disney. And I was convinced it was one of my friends having me off, you know. And he says, no, 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 Roy Disney, I read your book, and I want to know if you'd be interested in having the Walt Disney Company make a movie of your book. And I said, yeah, right, the book hasn't even come out yet. You know, yeah, you're fooling with me. He said, no, no, no. And it turned out that somebody in St. Martin's, I uh, had sent the Disney company uh, a manuscript with a note saying, we think you'd like this, this book and um, made its way up to Roy Disney. And it turned out he did like it very much. And, and I have, I have tried to find out who sent that manuscript to Disney um, because I wanted to kiss uh, her or him full on the lips. But I have never been able to find out who did that. Um, but anyway, they said, yeah, you know, we, we want to make this into a movie. And, uh, if you, if you read the book, uh, and everybody should read the book, uh, <laughs> you know, um, I didn't think it was filmable. I didn't think there was any way that they could make a movie out of the book. I, I just didn't see it, but they gave me more money than I had made for everything I had written previously put together. And I, you know, I'm more than willing to let them, let them try. And for, <laughs> for the, you know, for the first couple of years, they pretty much proved me right. They, they just couldn't get it together. They didn't have the technology. Um, finally, Roy Disney came to me and said, "Look," he said, "instead of doing it as a as a live action animated movie, what would you think about us doing it as as a movie with the cartoon characters in costume, like they are at Disneyland?" And I'm thinking to myself, oh, geez, I'm going to wind up with a movie with Fred McMurray as Eddie Valiant, Haley Mills as Jessica, you know, Dean Jones as the rabbit, and Kurt Russell as Baby Herman, right? I I said, you know, don't you think that that violates the concept just a little bit? And, of course, everybody agreed, and they went back. And, they, uh, you know, then in 1985, a couple of things happened. Uh, Roy Disney got forced out and got replaced by Michael Eisner. And Mike Eisner brought in Jeff Katzenberg, who had been uh, working with him at 20th Century, I think. And um, they threw out every project that was under development, because that's what new management always does, except for Roger Rabbit. They kept that because they needed that one. They, they, they were in danger of becoming a second-rate movie production company, and they needed a big splash. They had... They had uh, been offered E.T. and turned it down. They'd been offered Star Wars and turned it down. Um, they they needed something big and they needed something splashy, and this was it. So they brought in uh, a little-known guy to produce, which nobody at Disney had ever done before. They'd never brought in an outside producer. But this little-known guy that they'd worked with before was Steven Spielberg. And, you know, once Steven Spielberg gets involved – things immediately start to happen. Um, as an example, in 1981 or 82, Roy Disney went to Warner Brothers and said, you know, we're making this live action animated movie and um, we'd, we'd like to have Bugs Bunny do a cameo. He'll walk out and say, what's up, Doc? Uh, and and walk off the screen. And Warner Brothers looked at Roy Disney and said, get lost. No way. No way is Bugs Bunny ever going to appear in a Walt Disney picture. That will never happen. So five, six, seven years later, 
Steve Spielberg goes to Warner Brothers and makes the identical request. Um, can I have Bugs Bunny for a cameo? And Warner Brothers says, of course, of course, <laughs> take him, take him. Well, what about Porky Pig? Or what about Wiley Coyote and the Roadrunner? Well, you know, take them all, take them all. Yosemite Sam, God, get rid of them. And so he got them all uh, for ridiculously reasonable licensing fee. I mean, almost next to nothing. Uh, but the one, uh, the one requirement, Bugs Bunny being a superstar, a co-equal superstar to Mickey Mouse, uh, Bugs had a contract. And in Bugs' contract, Bugs had to be in every scene with Mickey. You could not have Mickey in a scene without Bugs. The two had to be in scene together. <laughs> and um, they also had to have the exact same number of words of dialogue. So you can go through the movie and you can see that uh, uh, big ego, big they, egos, big egos, big yeah. egos is the film business. Um, the other interesting thing, and I just found this out, um, Warner Brothers wanted to use the modern versions of the characters, which are considerably different from the 1940s version. Um, and the Disney animators were adamant about wanting to use the correct <clears throat> 1940s versions of the characters. Uh, so, and it turned out to be a good decision because when the movie came out, uh, Warner Brothers started making dolls with both the older version and the new version, and they kind of doubled their merchandise. But at the time, they couldn't see it. So they wanted to use the modern version. Uh, so the, the animators had to show them dailies uh, about, you know, how their characters were being portrayed. So the animators, the animator who was responsible for the Warner Brothers characters did two sets. He did a set with the original 1940s characters and a set with the modern characters. And then he showed Warner Brothers the set with the modern characters and Disney the set with the older characters. And, of course, the older characters went in the movie. And Warner Brothers didn't know it until the movie came out. Uh, they complained to Disney and the guy got fired. But, um, yeah, it turned out to be a good decision for Warner Brothers. Um, one other kind of interesting Mickey Bugs thing. Uh, the, uh, the animators weren't really happy with the way Warner Brothers kept saying, hey, you know, we want control over this. We want to see everything. You can use the modern characters. Uh, they were really, they were really not happy with that. So in the scene where uh, Bugs and uh, uh, Mickey are parachuting down, okay, um, they uh, they decided that in uh, six cells. Now there, there's something called gags in the margins. Uh, film goes through a projector at 24 frames a second. And you can pretty much fool around with six of those frames and the human eye can't see it. So they've, animators have been doing this for years. They put little drawings, in six cells, and they do it just to amuse themselves. And they know it's there, but nobody else does. Mm-hmm. So in the, uh, in the Bugs Mickey scene, as they're coming down, uh, they intended for Mickey to give Bugs the finger, okay? So they pass this along to one of the animators. And the, the animators, uh, they, Disney set up a studio in London with uh, uh, a bunch of expatriate animators from a lot of East Bloc countries. There were Russians. There were uh, all kinds of Spanish. And, and it was a real... Uh, uh, Tower of Babel. I mean, if you wanted to speak to one guy who's from the Ukraine, you sometimes had to speak to the guy from Spain who spoke to the guy from Italy, who spoke to the guy from Russia, who spoke to the guy from Ukraine, and they all came back around. So they got, they told this guy to do the scene with, you know, Mickey giving Bugs the finger. And he's, he got it wrong. And so if you look at that scene and you freeze frame it, you will see clearly that it is Bugs giving Mickey the finger. It was <laughs> the entire wrong concept. But uh, uh, anyway, the uh, the movie went on to become a roaring success. 
um, most successful movie of 1988, uh, won four Academy Awards, uh, grossed $750 million, the biggest grossing movie of the year. And um, they had the uh, they had the premiere at Radio City Music Hall in New York City. Uh, and, I, of course, I went. Uh, it was up in the VIP section, which was the first balcony. And I, uh, you know, I was going to see my movie on the screen for the first time. And, it, and they were still working on it up to a week before it premiered because they just didn't want to turn it loose. They were having so much fun with it. And I, I was going to see my credit on the screen for the first time, which I'd never seen because uh, they added that at the very last minute, and, uh, all of them at the very last minute. And, um, I, it, you know, I, I was sitting in, in the VIP section with Kathleen Turner sitting here, the voice of Jessica, and, and one of the most beautiful women I've ever met in my life, yeah. and Amy Irving sitting here, uh, the second most beautiful woman I've ever met in my life, who was the singing voice of Jessica Rabbit. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, life just doesn't get any better than this. <laughs> and, and then, by God, life got better because Kathleen put her hand on my leg and leaned over and whispered in my ear, Gary, are you excited? And I said, Kathleen, <laughs> you have no idea. <laughs> I, I remember you said at one point they were thinking about going with, like, costume um, <laughs> cartoon characters at what point did that switch over from um that idea to the live action animation oh, that was spielberg or was zemeckis oh yeah it was no it was way before that it, it, it was right. originally it was a roller coaster from from 1980 until 1985 mm. it, it kind of came and it went uh they did all kinds of different uh uh animation tests they brought in all kinds of different voice actors Wee herman came in for a while and nice. uh, was going to do the roger rabbit voice and uh, you know, they just, they didn't have the technology right. to do a, a good live action animated movie. And at that point, somebody came up with, Hey, let's do it with costumes. That really didn't last long because that was, you know, Howard the duck and uh, <laughs> that just didn't work. So, it, you know, it wasn't like a hard and fast thing. I don't even think they get any screen tests. It was just a concept that somebody threw out. Um, you know, no, it wasn't until Steve Spielberg got involved. He brought in Bob Zemeckis, uh, and both of them had read the, the novel when it first came out in yeah. 1981. Both of them, and they both thought it would make a great, a great movie. Uh, Disney had approached Bob Z about directing it uh, back in 1981, but he didn't think that Disney had the horsepower to do it in 1981. Yeah. So, you know, he went off and did some other little known movies, uh, Back to the Future and Forrest Gump, <laughs> and a bunch of other trash before finally. Not as good as Roger. Not as good as Roger. Uh, finally, Steve Spielberg, uh, came back to him and said, Hey, you know, now we've got the horsepower. What do you think? And so he came back in. Yeah. Where did Judge Doom come from? He's such a crazy character. Yeah, he, uh, you know, like I say, if you read the book, the book is yeah, different yeah. from the movie. Um, and, and, and people always say, well, what do you think that, you know, the book is different from the movie? Uh, but the book's a book and the movie's a movie. And, and, you know, I wrote the book to be the best possible book I was capable of writing. And I, the book appeals to a reader's imagination. Uh, you know, you read it and, and you, you, you see it in your head. Uh, the movie puts it all out there on screen. Like, and one of my favorite concepts from the book, these are cartoon characters from comic strips and comic books, and they speak in word balloons. So when you talk to them, they put up a word balloon and, and you read what they say. Uh, and if they turn around then the word balloon turns around and you've got to, you know, go behind them or learn to read in reverse. And, uh, you know, if somebody gets shot with a tune gun, um, the uh, the gun produces a bang balloon. And, uh, you know, if you then find another bang balloon, you can match the two bang balloons and see if they came from the same gun. It, it was just a concept for me, and I had a lot of fun with it. Yeah. But couldn't, you know, it didn't work as a, 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 as a movie. They, they tried early on because they loved the word balloons. But 
uh, every time you put up a word balloon in a movie, it makes it a silent movie. You know, you got to read a word balloon, and then, uh, and so that that was that was pretty quick to go. But they wanted to do an homage to me and my word balloon. So there, there was a scene, Marvin Acme's funeral, and in the in the funeral scene, um, tunes are carrying his coffin, and the tunes being tunes start laughing and giggling, and pretty soon all the tunes are laughing and giggling at this funeral. All except for Felix the cat. It's one of the pallbearers. And as he's walking along, he was a silent character. He never spoke in any of his karmic, in any of his cartoons or in any of his comic strips. Um, so as he's walking along, uh, Felix the cat puts up a word balloon that says sob and it turns to tears and comes down and, uh, uh and wets his shoulder. And it's a beautiful scene, but. The, the movie ran, I don't know, an hour and 50 minutes in the original cut. And the rule of thumb was that um, a children's movie has to be no longer than 90 minutes. And nobody knew if this was going to be a children's movie or an adult movie. They didn't know who was going to go to see this. So they cut scenes to bring it closer to 90 minutes. So I think they brought it down to maybe an hour and 40, something like that. But the... Um, uh, the coffin scene had to go. And also uh, the, the scene where Eddie Valiant goes into Toontown the first time and uh, confronts Judge Doom and Jessica's there. And uh, uh, he suspects that Jessica is working with Judge Doom. Uh, that whole scene got cut too. And um, you can kind of tell that there's something missing because you see Eddie Valiant after he gets picked. After he, you know, he comes back with a pig's head on his head. And, uh, you know, he's, he, he goes into his bathroom and washes the pig head off. But he, in the movie, Eddie Valiant comes out of his bathroom wearing his T-shirt, his sleeveless, his wife beater T-shirt, and, and a tie. He comes out of his bathroom. And Jessica is there. And if you think about it, what is a guy doing in his bathroom wearing you know, a, a sleeveless T-shirt and a tie. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. But if you saw the stuff that was cut out, it makes perfect sense. But Judge Doom, um, we needed a villain. And um, it had to be a villain that could not exist in a human world, uh, but that made sense in a tune world. Yeah. And, and I've, I've played around a lot in uh, uh, in my sequel novels in Who Plugged Roger Rabbit. Uh, where we we standardized on the four piece stutter, and um, I, I played around a lot with tunes becoming humans and humans becoming tunes, um, and and then who whacked Roger Rabbit? So it, we we wanted a human who looked human but was actually a tune, and you know worked really well. Worked with the concept, freighting uh, the the scene with Doom and his eyes. Uh, the, the two things that people tell me uh, that really either frightened them or kind of horrified them about the movie, Doom with his eyes. I mean, I, 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 have, I have given small children nightmares <laughs> that will be that will be revealed on psychiatrist couches for the next 30 years. I mean, yeah, I was one of those kids. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. So, you know. And the other one is the red shoe. When, when Doom, when Doom dipped the red shoe, I mean, there are red shoe societies. I have, I have vowed, I have vowed in, in, in letters and emails to the red shoe society that when we do a sequel, I will resurrect the red shoe right there that will bring back the red shoe. I promise I bring back the red shoe. Will there ever be a sequel, you think? Uh, you, you know, I, I, I t- I'll tell you what I tell everybody else. Uh, stay tuned. Um, you know, the movie at last, uh, at last accounting made more than, uh, oh, it's way over a billion dollars now. And it's, uh, uh, it's given rise to Disney, uh, uh, Toontown theme parks at Disneyland, Tokyo Disneyland. Um, it, it's, 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 made a lot of money for a lot of people. Yeah. And in Hollywood, that's generally the gating factor. And yeah, sooner or later, 
Um, I, my belief is that things will come together and yeah, we will see a sequel. Yeah, there's so much, I mean, it's so marketable and it's one of those things every generation of kids, yeah. would, you know, would love Roger Rabbit type deal for sure. Yeah. You know, you know, the, the I, I see movie lists of movies that most that people would love to see sequels made. And uh, the, the two that used to be the top of the list were Pretty Woman and uh, Roger Rabbit. People wanted to see that. Pretty Woman is pretty much fallen off the fallen off the list but roger rabbit is still number one i mean it is still number one movie that people would love to see a sequel made it was incredibly groundbreaking for its time it'd be crazy to see yeah. what they could do with the technology now with the, you know what i mean mm-hmm. all right well gary, guys i gotta i gotta go so uh, yeah, gary we thank you very much for being on the show you were a great guest we'd love to have you again i know you're a local man maybe we'll get together sometime that would be fantastic my pleasure hey so shameless plug, uh, yes. go to my website, www.garywolf.com, and you will learn about all things Wolfian, and uh, you will be able to buy my books and read them, which uh, everybody everybody should do. I mean, it should, should be a requirement, all right? For sure. Yeah, everybody definitely go support Gary. Gary, can right. we get one quick drop from you? Sure. Just, you know, have you done drops before where you're just, I'm Gary K. Wolf, creator of Roger Rabbit. You're listening to the Boom Basticast. Sure. Sure. The Boom what? Uh, Boom Basticast. Boom Basticast? Yeah. So kind of like Boom Bastic, but cast, but you know, so Boom Basticast. Hey. Hey. Okay. Here you go. Hey. How you doing out there? This is Gary K. Wolf, creator of Roger Rabbit. And you're listening to Boom Boss Basticast. <laughs> I screwed that up royally. <laughs> it's okay. If you do a, a Boom Basticast, I can add it. And you're listening this. to Boom Basticast. <laughs> I'll do it again. We'll try one more. We'll try one more. I'll do it again. Together. Hey, how you doing out there? This is Gary K. Wolf, creator of Roger Rabbit. And you're listening to Boom Basticast. Stay tuned. Perfect. Gary, thank you very much, man. Thank you very much. Hey, I got to tell you guys. um, This was one of the best interviews I've ever had because you didn't ask me any of the usual questions. I mean, I had a good time and that's always important for me. Uh, and you were great interviewers, and I will I will do your show anytime. Uh, we really appreciate awesome. that. We really try to make it this a cool experience for the people no, involved and, and, and the fans. I'm, you know, yeah, yeah, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, I, and I very rarely get get questions that I haven't asked a million times. But you guys asked me three dozen. And I appreciate it. <laughs>